For those of you who have uh, lived in the Seattle area for a while, many of you will remember the uh, church Mars Hill. Um, the senior, pa- the pastor there, senior pastor there was Mark Driscoll. So before uh, Mark Driscoll and the church imploded a few years ago, they had at one point 13,000 members. 13,000 members. Now, for any congregation anywhere, that is a huge number. But for Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, that is a mind-boggling number. In addition, the vast majority of those 13,000 were in the least churched age demographic, 18 to 34. And on top of all that, in this bluest of blue bastions, Mark Driscoll was almost neolithically conservative. So at the height of their popularity, I would frequently be asked, why? What, is, what are they doing? Why do so many people go to that church? Especially young people. Especially considering the things that they preach and they teach. Well, I think that there were actually a number of factors that combined to help create uh, Mars Hill. But one that I always thought was very significant was exactly because of what they preached and taught. Mark Driscoll very confidently, clearly, and emphatically told people what you should and shouldn't believe. What they should and shouldn't do, especially in relationships. And with whom they should or shouldn't associate. Mark Driscoll had no problem speaking for God in very concrete terms. And frankly, I believe that most of us are longing for clarity and certainty in the midst of all the confusion and chaos of this life. Clarity and certainty is a wonderful thing, especially for us when we're young. Think of how much more serene life would be if we knew in every instance what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Mark Driscoll was more than happy to let you know. In our story from this morning from Luke, the theology professor, and I'll come back to why I call him a theology professor, who talks to Jesus, in part, is looking for some clarity. In part, He wants to lighten one of life's burdens. Who is my neighbor? He wants to know for whom he needs to care. Who's my neighbor? Maybe more importantly, he wants to know for whom he doesn't need to care. Who's not my neighbor? But rather than clarify and make things easier... 
Jesus obliterates the whole concept of limits entirely. Jesus doesn't give the theology professor anything to set in stone. Jesus challenges this man and all of us to let ourselves be moved by the Holy Spirit in our hearts for anyone. Initially, the theology professor is just trying to get Jesus to say something that goes against standard religious teaching. And I'm calling uh, this man a, a theology professor. The NIV translates it as an expert in the law, but the law was the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible. And so the more equivalent to us today than lawyer would be uh, a theology professor, a Bible professor. And we, we hear his motives in that opening, that the man approached him or stood up and stood up in order to test Jesus. And so he asks him, um, Jesus, how do, I, uh, how do I gain eternal life? What must I do? I'm trying to find where I am. There we go. Uh, What must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy is an expert in this stuff. And Jesus knows that. Jesus is not going to be fooled. And so Jesus reverses roles here and asks the professor, you know this stuff. What do you think? When you read the scriptures, how do you read it? And he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And interestingly, uh, Jesus' response is kind of funny and, and continues the role reversal because he says, you answered correctly. Correctly is the Greek word orthos, from which we get orthodoxy, orthodox. You, you, you got the right answer, professor. Well done. Now, this is when things get interesting. The response about loving God and loving your neighbor is orthodox, it's correct, but it's also tremendously ambiguous. What does it mean to love God that way, but even more so, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? The priests, professors, and leader of the, leaders of the church at the time were basically specialized in concrete details. In the Hebrew scriptures, there are over 1,500 distinguishable laws or commands. And there were also all sorts of interpretations about what does that mean in specific situations. So this theology professor is trying to get Jesus to say something concrete and at the same time maybe catch him in a mistake. So he asks him, okay, who is my neighbor? Now, I think we should be fair to the theology professor, the person questioning Jesus. Most of us do this type of thing in our heads all the time. I'll give money to those people 
but I am not giving money to those people. Or I'll respond when I see this type of a person in need, but I won't respond when I see that type of a person in need. We do designate who we care for and who we don't in many ways. And in some ways, it would be great if we had guidance on this. Wouldn't it be great if we actually had Jesus gives us a list of, okay, yeah, take care of these people. These people, don't worry about it. It would make things a lot easier. Now, uh, and actually, um, oh yeah, Fre- Frederick Beekner, who's a Presbyterian uh, author, um, writes, I should say it this way, he's a great author who happens to be Presbyterian. Um, he, he has a great take on this. He says, the professor wanted a legal definition he could refer to in case the question of loving a neighbor ever happened to come up. He presumably wanted something in the order of a neighbor, here and after referred to as the party of the first part, is to be construed as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence unless there is another person of Jewish descent here and after to be referred to as the party of the second part living closer to the party of the first part than one is oneself, in which case the party of the second part is to be construed as neighbor to the party of the first part and one is oneself relieved of all responsibility of any sort or kind whatsoever. Now that's clear. You can work with that. But we don't get anything like that, nothing like that, that we can set in stone. Instead, Jesus answers, I love the the message translates this, Jesus answered by telling a story. Now we know that both the priest and the Levite, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but we know that the priest and the Levite saw the man that was lying half dead on the side of the road. We hear that in verses 31 and 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, to, so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Those two are linked in their actions by the Greek word hamoios, which is likewise. The priest did this, likewise the Levite did this. The exact same things. What we don't know is why. We don't know why they didn't help. There are a lot of people, commentators on this, writers, preachers, who speculate. But Jesus does not tell us why they didn't do it. Jesus does not tell us why they didn't offer help. All we know is that they both saw the man and chose not to help, not to do anything for her. And then someone comes along and helps this broken man in numerous ways. Gives first aid. That's what the pouring of the wine and the oil is. 
He gives up his transportation to transport the victim to a safe place. He covers the cost of the victim's full expenses, including any that are unforeseen. We don't know why the first two didn't help, but we do know why the third person did, and that's in verse 33. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And I, the NIV fails miserably here in that phrasing of this. Um, this is my favorite Greek word, everybody. Esplognitze. Splognitze. It sounds like what it means. It means his guts ripped open for this guy. I mean, he took pity on him. It's so weak. This guy's gut was wrenched when he saw this human being in the condition that he was. And so out of total gut-wrenching compassion, he took care of this man. He allowed that compassion to move him into action. This is a coming together of Micah's great explanation of what God wants from us in life. God, God showed you what is good. What does God require, the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, splagnitza, and to walk humbly with our God. That is what, this all comes together in this man's action, in this Samaritan's action. And then Jesus wraps up this story in a fascinating way. First, he asks the theology professor another question. And we usually hear it again like the NIV translates this. Um, do, 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 do. The expert, or, so which of these, Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It is more literally which of these three became a neighbor to the man? That's a fascinating way to... Who, which one became a neighbor? We can love anyone, Jesus is saying. We can make anyone a neighbor with compassion. And so after the theology professor acknowledges it was the one who acted with compassion, Jesus says, go and do likewise. And again, it's that same homoios. Just as the first two were linked together, they did likewise in ignoring the man. Jesus is saying to this theology professor, you do likewise with the Samaritan who showed compassion. And it's that response that destroys any last vestiges of limits that the uh, theology professor might have been clinging to in his mind. Jesus was telling this professor to be like his worst enemy. The Samaritans had at one time actually been a part of the nation of Israel. But then they started intermarrying with the pagan cultures. And as far as the, the Israelites that now felt themselves as the true Israelites believed, that was essentially their way of turning their back on God and all the faith. And over time, that split grows greater and greater. And just like happens a lot of times with siblings, 
um, the intensity of the hatred becomes even stronger because you are so close. And so they became uh, amazing uh, enemies. Tom Wright, a British theologian, has a great point on this. He writes that the hate between the Jewish people and the Samaritans had gone on for centuries, hundreds of years, and is still reflected today, tragically, in the tension between Israel and Palestine. Both sides claimed to be the true inheritors of the promises of Abraham and Moses. Though now the the Palestinians most have a different religion entirely, uh, they are essentially the descendants of the Israelites and the Samaritans. And that is the hatred that was at work when Jesus was saying to this man, be like, go and do like the Samaritan. By including this full story, Luke is teaching us all that Jesus desires compassion for all people, from all people. It is as big and as open as that. Compassion for all people, from all people. This story has always been challenging enough for me because it opens us up to so much hurt and potential time and sacrifice. If everyone I come across is someone to whom I might become a neighbor, I can no longer easily or quickly dismiss anyone as unnecessary to care about. Again, one more comment from Tom Wright. No church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. But Thursday, this story got even more difficult and more challenging for me. A friend of mine posted on Facebook an opinion piece from the New York Times. The piece was called um, Our Culture of Contempt, and it was written by Arthur C. Brooks. The whole thing is challenging. But the most astonishing thing for me was a statistic that he shared. To understand the level of animosity between different people groups, social scientists have a a measurement that they call motive attribution asymmetry. Basically, it's the concept, how much does one side feel like if our group does it, it's because we care and we're good people, and it's out of the goodness of our hearts. But if those people do it, you know they're up to something. They're, it's evil. They're despicable. It can be the same action, but they're no. And that's the motive attribution asymmetry. The, the, the greater that is, the, the worse the hatred between groups. Okay. So he notes in a 2014 article that came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, so you know it has to be right. This is the quote. The researchers found that the average Republican and the average Democrat today suffer from a level of motive attribution asymmetry 
that is comparable with that of the Palestinians and the Israelis. Bam! Ouch! That hurt so bad to read that because it's true. We are at the same level as the Palestinians and the Israelites today in our country in political parties or the level of the Samaritans and the Israelites of Jesus' time. I read that, and the first thing that came to mind, because I've been studying this Good Samaritan passage all week, the first thing that came to mind was Jesus retelling the parable to me, but the one bloodied and half-dead on the ground is a progressive activist, and the one who takes care of that person is a white male evangelical wearing a red mega hat. That, uh, seriously, that was the image that came to mind. That is what Jesus, how he would tell the story to me. Am I willing to see all human beings as worthy of compassion? Am I willing to allow myself to be moved with compassion for anyone? If I don't read If I don't hear the passage in this way, then I'm missing the point because Jesus, the point is, desires compassion for all people from all people. Now, the only hope that I have in this, and I think for most of us who are disciples of Christ, comes from Paul's words that he wrote in the New Testament passage. Alone, there is no way I could do that on my, on my own. To have the grace and strength to live the way that God desires us to live. But we are not on our own. We have the spirit of Christ living within us. Paul writes, so I say, live by the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. We know the acts of the sinful nature. They're obvious. And normally, a lot of the church in the U.S. focuses on the sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. They skip over to the drunkenness, orgies, and like, well, usually even they'll pass the drunkenness and go to the orgies. But what we often don't look at is hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Those are the works of selfishness and and our own will. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, and compassion. Acts of compassion, especially. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit within us, let us keep in step with the Spirit within us. Jesus desires compassion for all people, from all people. And we can live this way when we allow ourselves to be moved by the Holy Spirit breaking our hearts. Amen.